Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. He told Dave, I'm going to be 90 years old and I'm going to die being called a racist, even though I've worked my entire life for the exact opposite cause. And I think that kind of sums it up. If he was He's looking at the end of his life and he realizes that everything that he's worked for, the hard-earned reputation that he had earned, had been smeared in a matter of moments. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, I am Steve Lowry here with my great co-host, Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you? I'm good. I'm good, Steve. I'm excited for this one today. This is a this is really interesting. All our cases are a little bit different, but this one is this one is is very different from a lot of the cases we've been talking about recently. Yeah, it involves a lot of really interesting issues. And I think this is actually our second defamation case that we've covered on the podcast. So uh, um, it sounds like uh, you can do very well on defamation cases. And as our uh, guests, uh, uh, Brandon and Janan, I'm going to screw up your name, Janan, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but uh, as, as they can talk about, uh, this was uh, not an, an easy case. They definitely... Uh, definitely uh, fought a long time on it. And it looked like every bit of it was uh, contested by the defense. Yeah, I mean, and uh, yeah, we're definitely we're going to hear about it. But there's, um, it's really interesting. I think when you heard, I, I when I heard about this case in the news, I sort of thought one thing and I read some articles and I wasn't sure what to think. And then I read more of the materials from the case and kind of uh, saw some of the evidence introduced at trial from the case. And it's just really it's just really fascinating. I can't wait to talk about it. Well, let's go ahead and uh, and stop uh, delaying it, and let's go ahead and introduce <laughs> our uh, our guest. You don't want us uh, to tease it for another like five yeah, minutes. Let's go on for another ten minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so uh, so our guests today are Brandon McHugh and uh, Janan Ayub, uh, who are from the firm of Zangus Placus Manos Ltd. And you can look them up at lawlion.com. And I got to say, I went on to your website and I looked up lawlion.com and it's one of the cooler websites I saw for a law firm and, uh, and has, a, has a lion logo and then, uh, and then a, uh, a motto of guardian of your rights. I mean, it just looks very cool. So welcome, Brandon and Janan. Thank you, Steve and Yvonne, and thank you so much for the kind words on the website. I'll make sure I pass that along to our IT department. I'm sure they'll be appreciative of your words. Yeah, yeah, it just looks very formidable when you when you uh, when you go on. You're like, man, these guys must really be badass. <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, um, and I should say, I should say, Brandon, uh, you also tried this case, and we, we don't have him on the the uh, uh, podcast, but uh, I tried this case with Lee Placus from your firm, and and um, uh, and he was heavily involved in the case. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Lee was the lead trial counsel. Lee's the managing partner of our firm, and he was also lead trial counsel in the case. And, you know, he handled a lot of the heavier issues and more complex issues in the case as well. Unfortunately, he was not able to join us today. That's okay. That's okay. Well, as we've been stringing this out and we haven't, we haven't introduced the case, let me talk a little bit about uh, Brandon and, um, and Janan. Uh, both of you are, are what I would say is fairly young lawyers. Uh, Janan was telling us right before the, uh, the podcast that this was her very first trial. Uh, Brandon uh, McHugh uh, practices, as I said already, up in Canton, Ohio with Zangus Placus Manos. He specializes in uh, business litigation, wrongful death and personal injury, uh, fraud litigation, uh, commercial torts, and oil and gas litigation, uh, which I'm sure is, uh, that, that's, 
that would be way out of my league of uh, being able to talk about intelligently. Um, <laughs> but I, I noticed on here, uh, Brandon, that uh, so you, you went to the University of Akron School of Law and uh, did pretty well. He, he graduated with something called a summa cum laude. So I think that means he, uh, he did well in school. And then when he uh, graduated, he was in the top five of his class. And uh, when he finished the uh, Ohio State bar exam, he was in the 100th percentile, which I, I think means he was at the very top of all the people that took the bar exam. So congratulations <laughs> on that, Brandon. Thank you very much. I mean, it sounds like nobody else did better than you on the bar exam. <laughs> I think if you look at the numbers, there was like 800 people that took it. So I guess theoretically eight people could be in the 100% percentile. Right. That's pretty <laughs> impressive. That's pretty impressive. I, I approach the bar very much as the pass fail test that it is. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and, and, <laughs> well, and, and I should say, so Janan Ayub actually uh, passed the bar, started with the firm back in uh, November of 2018. And, uh, and while she was in law school, she participated in the American Association of Justice Trial Advocacy Program and uh, won her region uh, twice and finished second nationwide. Uh, so uh, congratulations to you, Janan. That is an impressive accomplishment. Thank you. Well, guys, this is a, uh, like we've been uh, saying, this case that you, uh, that you tried is a really fascinating case. It was tried in June of this year, so it's a little more than a month old, and I'm sure you guys are uh, knee-deep in post-judgment uh, briefs, or, unless you got the case settled, which I hope you did, but uh, if you didn't, then I'm sure you're, you're knee-deep in, uh, in your briefing and, uh, and, and looking towards the uh, appellate courts. Um, yeah, that's correct, Steve. We just had our attorney fee, attorney fees hearing last week, and we are in the midst of post-trial briefing right now. Yeah, and that's always fun when you know. And and I I haven't read any of it, so I'm not going to say anything. I just say, in my experience, it seems like when you read the post-judgment briefing, it seems like the people who wrote it uh, didn't watch anything that actually happened in the trial. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I think. Uh, We'd be leaning that direction as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's let's talk about this case that uh, that you tried. Got a lot of nation national uh, attention. Got a lot of uh, press. And uh, the name of the case is Gibson Brothers Incorporated versus Oberlin College. And uh, the, it was tried in Lorain County, Ohio. Uh, it involves Oberlin College, which is up in the uh, the northeastern part of Ohio, uh, outside of Cleveland. And uh, the total verdict, uh, well, I should say the compensatory amount of damages was $11 million, and the punitive amount of uh, damages was $33.2 million for a total award of $44,200,000. Uh, essentially, the claims were, were defamation. And, uh, and as I warned you beforehand, Brandon, I'm going to talk a little bit about your verdict forms, but uh, let me give some background to the case. And uh, it's, a, it's a complex case, so I know I'm not going to get everything right, and I'm going to let you fill in where I screw it up. Um, sure. But, the, uh, but essentially what happened is you represented a bakery, uh, Gibson's Brothers Bakery, which had been uh, in Oberlin, Ohio, for uh, over 100 years and had serviced the community and, and um, had given a lot of service to the college itself. And, and uh, up until this point, uh, November 9 of 2016, seemed like they had a really good relationship with the college. Um, 
And then on November 9, 2016, and I guess I should set, set it a little bit because it, it didn't really dawn on me until I read the opening statements that, uh, that, that Lee gave, um, that this was all taking place right after the 2016 election. So um, I'm sure tensions were already high and then, uh, and then this sort of spun out of control. But, but basically what happened was on November 9, 2016, um, as you know, happened from time to time, uh, the, um, employees at Gibson brothers caught some students trying to shoplift some wine from their bakery. Uh, they, uh, they were arrested, they were prosecuted. And then I'm not sure I really understand. And I'd, I'd love to hear this part of the story. But I'm not sure I really understand how this became such a, uh, um, campus-wide or city-wide issue, but somehow after this, these arrests were made, it, it was, um, uh, there were protests that were started by the students where they were essentially claiming that the people at Gibson's were racist and were somehow racially uh, profiling, even though there had never been any claims of that before this point. Uh, and, and then essentially what this case was about was not only the, the fact that the, the students were uh, essentially painting Gibson Brothers as being a, a racist uh, business, um, but that they were being egged on or um, uh, um, um, supported by, by the college, including the vice president of student affairs, even the president of the college. And, uh, and then their um, special assistant for community affairs seemed to be sort of the top three people. But essentially, uh, they were giving um, what I would call support uh, strategy and, um, and essentially um, finding ways in order to put pressure on uh, Gibson brothers to make them drop the charges against these, these three people who um, uh, admitted that they had stolen this wine, never said anything was uh, racially based. Um, um, you know, it, it eventually um, um, pled guilty to the, to the crimes. So it's really hard to understand about how this sort of spun out of control. Uh, but some of the evidence that you were able to, um, to discover and present to the jury um, included the fact that uh, the vice president of student affairs was out there with the protesters, was uh, there with a bullhorn sort of leading it, um, was helping them uh, give out flyers, calling this a, a racist business, telling them to go to another business, um, supplied gloves for the, um, for the protesters. Um, and then they took the extra step uh, in, uh, anybody who's been on a college campus lately probably understands this. Uh, and as my daughter's getting ready to go to college, I'm learning about it, but you can get a, a, um, uh, college funds or you put your money into an account for the college, which the, can, then can be used to buy food on campus, but also in businesses around the campus. Um, and they just basically use a card and this was called OB dollars, uh, short for Oberlin dollars, I assume. And, uh, and these OB dollars um, were a very important source of income to the business. And the college made the decision to cut off um, being able to use OB dollars at uh, Gibson Brothers and essentially cut off their business um, 
you know, from what I saw, they also um, had a number of emails going back and forth to sort of help strategize how they could put pressure on Gibson Brothers. They um, they actually uh, paid for the lawyers that represented the uh, the three individuals. And, um, and I'm sure I'm cutting a lot of this short and, and Brandon, I'd, lo- I'd love for you to uh, fill in where I'm missing, but, but basically gave a lot of support and actually led the effort in attacking this business and painting it as a, as a, a racist business when there really was no evidence of that. Uh, and, and, um, and costing them their, you know, hard-earned reputation that was over a hundred years old, uh, costing them a lot of business. And this was a family-run business. It was a, a grandfather, his son, and a grandson who basically ran the business. Um, they they uh, uh, came under tremendous pressure, and even at one point, it was described uh, that Grandpa Gibson, when he uh, thought that somebody was vandalizing his house. Um, it sounded like he tripped and fell and actually broke his neck um, because he was going to the front door. And, and I, I know I'm leaving out a lot, but, uh, but just a lot of events like that where uh, essentially um, this business was almost put out of business uh, because the college decided to step in and, and help uh, uh, paint them as a, as a uh, racist organization. Uh, that yeah. was a long explanation, Brandon. So uh, tell me, tell me where I screwed that up. Yeah, Steve, I think you hit a lot of the high points, but you know, I think one of the most important factors was is that Gibson's Bakery is a family-run business that's been in Oberlin since 1885, continuously run by the same family. And indeed, there was evidence presented at trial by Grandpa Gibson, who is 90 years old now, that Gibson's Bakery has been providing products to the college since before World War I. So a very, very long time they've been providing baked goods and other pastries and other products to the college. And that relationship had lasted since before World War I. Um, the bakery itself lasted through World War I, through the Great Depression, through World War II, through the Great Recession up until today. And after this very, very long relationship in, in November of 2016, these protest erupted after three students were arrested for shoplifting wine at Gibson's Bakery. And you, you hit on some of it, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the high points. And I think it's important to remember that the case wasn't about what the students were doing. It was about what Oberlin College did at the protest. And throughout trial, the jury heard evidence that Oberlin College administrators passed out flyers. Um, there were evidence that at least two administrators passed out flyers, provided facilities to print the flyers, bought food and refreshments, and Steve, you hit on, purchased gloves for the protesters, provided conference rooms for the protesters to rest, um, allowed a defamatory student senate resolution to be posted for over one year. Um, so the case was not about what the students did, it was about the college's actions. And you also hit on it correctly, it was devastating to the Gibson family. This business that had been in continuous operation for 130 years was devastated. Their business went down significantly. And uh, you also hit on it that the college ended up terminating business for a period of time with the bakery. So yeah, I mean, I think you hit on a lot of the high notes, but that, that's essentially the story. That's what happened. And, you know, you mentioned the the arrest of the three students on November 9th. And in reality, that was not an issue at trial. That wasn't, it wasn't really discussed at all at trial. In fact, 
opposing counsel got up during their opening statements and said that the students were charged, they were prosecuted, they were arrested, they were found guilty, and, and I'm quoting here, they got exactly what they deserved in the judicial system. So it, this case was really about not that shoplifting incident, but about the reaction afterwards, what Oberlin College did after that shoplifting incident. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great <laughs> lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. I should mention the, the claims that I saw that were, that were argued about and brought were uh, defamation, uh, intentional infliction of emotional distress and uh, tortious inter interference of business relations, all of which are, are fairly high burdens um, to meet when you're in a courtroom. And I, and I actually saw on your verdict form that one of the findings the jury had to make uh, was that this was done out of hatred, ill will, or a spirit of revenge. Um, so talk about that little, a little bit about this sort of uh, very high burden and how you, how you guys were able to develop the evidence to meet that. Sure. So there were, and I should probably back up a little bit and explain. So in Ohio, we have um, tort reform that was passed in 2005. So the punitive phase and the compensatory phases of trial are separated. One happens first and after the compensatory verdict is given, then it proceeds to punitive damages in Ohio to receive punitive damages, you have to show what Ohio courts call common law actual malice or hatred, ill will, a spirit of revenge, or conduct that has a substantial probability of causing significant harm. So the evidence that was presented to the jury, and the, and the jury made that finding, at least on the intentional infliction of emotional distress and defamation claims, a lot of that evidence was pulled from internal communications and documents that the college had they produced during discovery showing that they, you know, the evidence was presented to show that they essentially ignored statements that were being made to them that the defamatory nature of the protest, including the flyer and the student senate resolution resolution was false. And, you know, for example, I have an example here for you. Um, I'm going to pull the email out. So there was an email on the second day of the protest, November 11th, 2016, from an Oberlin College employee, and she said, and I'm quoting here, I have talked to 15 county friends or people from, Oberlin, from the city of Oberlin who are people of color, and they are disgusted and embarrassed by the protest. In their view, the kid was breaking the law, period. 
To them, this is not a race issue at all, and they do not believe that Gibson's a racist. They believe the students have picked the wrong target. This email was circulated to high-level administrators inside Oberlin College, and one of the responses was, doesn't change a damned thing for me. So the jury was presented with evidence of this type, and that's what led them to determine and find that Oberlin College acted with actual malice unanimously. Yeah, I, I, there's a, um, I think it's a document from your website um, from the, the, uh, about frequently asked questions about, um, that are answering the frequently asked, blah, 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 frequently asked questions <laughs> um, about the case and about the verdict. And it includes excerpts of evidence and the exhibits that you all introduced. And it really is, it really is really useful if anybody wants to check it out to learn more about the case. But it, it's also, it's pretty shocking what was coming from the administration and high level people in response to kind of um, criticism about the protest or, or people even kind of questioning whether the response was inappropriate. It really um, kind of the language that's used and the way things were responded to it does it does seem pretty egregious. I mean, I can I could see after reading this stuff how the jury got there. Right, and those, and the, the, I think especially those documents that you're referring to in the frequently asked questions, those were the boards that we showed to the jury during the punitive phase of trial. So they were presented with all of that evidence and then made the finding that Overland College acted with actual malice. Yeah, you know, I was reading some of these and I'll, I'll, I'll clean them up a little bit. But I mean, you know, at one point, the you know, special assistant writes, uh, you know, um, we should just give the business to an, another business and F them. And then uh, and then another one uh, writes that after a year, I hope we rain fire and brimstone on that store. And it's uh, it's interesting because I, I, I read part of the defense opening and, and I actually thought that the theme they went for was a pretty good theme, except that the evidence didn't really support it. But this this idea that when there's uh, a student protest, that it's the job of the college to act as a calming influence and to, uh, you know, essentially attend these and and, and then just make sure that everything stays under control and that, um, you know, they're they're you know, there to let the students uh, express their their rights of free speech. And if they want to protest, they can. They just need to. Um, keep it under control. But then when you look at these emails where uh, they're filled with expletives, which you'd be shocked at for, um, you know, college administration um, and where they are literally uh, just, you know, coming up with the plan on how they're going to attack this business just doesn't uh, really go in line with this whole idea of being the calming influence. Yeah, Steve, I would agree. I think that was one of the themes that the college tried to get out during opening statement, but I believe you're absolutely correct that the evidence that was presented to the jury was not that the, it was that the college was not a calming influence. Uh, you know, the jury was presented evidence with evidence that the college was actively, actively participating in the protest. Can you talk a little bit about, um, and I know this is this was mentioned, I think, in some of the briefing or or um, somewhere. But can you talk a little bit? I think a lot of the public perception, not knowing the details and the ins and outs of the case or the law, would be that um, that this is a First Amendment issue, that this is a free speech issue. Can you talk a little bit about the intersection between that and what happened in this case, and why it um, it wasn't just a oh free speech and and that's it, end of the story. 
Sure. Um, so as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, and I'm sure, as I'm sure both of you are aware, the United States Supreme Court in, over the past 50 years came out with some cases limiting defamation cases to a certain extent. However, what's been clear from the beginning is that defamatory statements are not protected by the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. So while, you know, I think the college during opening statements and during trial and even afterwards have tried to frame this as a First Amendment issue, it's not. Those statements that the court determined during the summary judgment briefing to be defamatory per se are entitled to no protection under the United States Constitution. And how did you, is, is there anything special that you did to handle that um, with the jury to make sure that they either understood that or that they weren't in deliberations sort of struggling with that issue? Yeah, so I think, I think one, of our, one, of our themes, one of our themes was, and what Lee did a really good job doing is, he took the First Amendment and he compared it to the Second Amendment. And he said, while you have protections under both, both amendments of the United States Constitution, you have the right to bear arms and you have the right to free speech, recklessly aimed false statements are the same or can be just as damaging as recklessly aimed bullets. They can cause just as much harm. And while you do have freedom of speech, there are limitations on that speech. And additionally, you have to be responsible for the statements that you make in a public space and in a public forum. Got it. Um, yeah, and I noticed, so the, the judge, talk a little bit about the defamation per se, because it looked like the judge had already made a determination that the flyers in the case, and, and, and uh, I don't have the actual language of the flyers, uh, if you've got it in front of you, uh, Brandon, but, but the judge had already made a determination that, that the statements in those flyers were defamation per se, is that right? That's correct. So the statement in the flyer, and you know, there was a lot of language on there, but there were essentially two statements that the judge pulled out and ruled to be defamatory per se. The first is, is that the Gibsons are a racist establishment with a long history or a long account of racial profiling and racial discrimination. And the second statement was, is that the owners of Gibson's Bakery, which are Grandpa Gibson, Alan W. Gibson, and Dave Gibson, that they committed an assault on a member of the community. Those are the two statements. And the way defamation law works is that's a question of law to be decided by the judge. It's not left to the jury. So during summary judgment briefing and then actually during trial, the judge clarified and ruled that both of those statements were defamatory per se. And then those statements, I know that you had evidence that they were uh, spread by and, and, and passed around by the college. Did you know where those statements had come from or was that a student done thing or, or, or did the faculty help with that as well? So there wasn't a lot of evidence presented of who drafted the documents. And again, I think the important focus is on what the college did and the fact the jury was presented with evidence that the college distributed the flyers, the college provided facilities for the flyer to be printed, that the college assisted and aided and abetted the protesters during and, and aided and abetted the protesters in the distribution of those documents. Yeah, it, it definitely seemed like a surprising level of involvement, though. I mean, we've already touched on a little bit, but um, that one of the administrators, you know, had a stack of flyers and had handed them to a student to pass them out and had a bullhorn at one point, sounded like. So, you know, for, for people who have been in, involved in um, protests at the college level before, um, 
or events like that, that, I don't know, that just seemed like that seemed very surprising to me and obviously (laughs) was the important part of your case. Yeah, I think, I think we would agree. And I think most people would expect a college when dealing with a situation like this to be the adult in the room when dealing with a student. But in this case, the jury was even presented with evidence that while the protests were ongoing, Oberlin College, including the former president, instead of being the adult in the room, looked to the students for guidance and how they were going to respond. And I think that was one of the one of the main themes and one of the main issues in the case. Yeah, I have to say, in reading the opening, I thought uh, I thought that uh, you guys did a really good job in developing what I saw as two. Uh, sort of overarching themes is one that, you know, there were a multitude of what you call teaching moments that the college could have stepped in and, you know, said, maybe we take a step back and let's look at why we're doing this. And instead of doing that, they just sort of, you know, uh, uh, put fuel on the fire. And then, and then this other theme of a, of a sort of David versus Goliath, that when you're in a, in a small town, that's a college town of Oberlin, that the university or the college is, is really the Goliath there because they control a, a lot of what happens in that town. Um, talk about how you developed those themes and, uh, and did, you, um, did you focus group this case and what were you learning from the focus groups? Yeah, so we did do a focus group um, and I think those two themes that you highlighted are two of the ones that resonated. So Overland is a small town, but you're right, it's a college town, and Overland College is the Goliath in, in the city of Overland. Uh, I don't have the statistics right in front of me, but I believe they are by far the largest employer. They own a substantial amount of property, and they, they hold a significant amount of weight in the community. So that was one of the themes that we wanted to highlight about how they were the Goliath and our people, Gibson's Bakery, were, were the David in this scenario. Yeah, and there was even some of the emails that I saw even uh, were the uh, administration getting angry that that, uh, somehow Gibson's was uh, painting itself as the victim in this whole thing when they really were the only ones that were being being hurt by everything. I mean, they, you know, not only uh, had they lost, you know, uh, a lot of business reputation, but they, you know, uh, had lost physical property and and suffered physical injury because of this. And then somehow the uh, administration still got upset about that. Right. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind is they they were a victim of crime and the response they got for being a victim of crime was to be protested against and be called racist, essentially. And related to that, can you talk a little bit about this was something I hadn't known from um, press coverage, but can you talk a little bit about um, both this sort of history leading up to this event of Oberlin maybe leaning on um, Gibson's or local businesses in general to sort of not press charges for the first sort of shoplifting offenses and also how sort of it it sounded like to me that these protests were um, also kind of being used to um, put pressure on Gibson's that if you basically if you drop the charges or whatever we'll make this we'll settle down. Yeah so after after the protest occurred, um, there was evidence presented at trial, and in fact, well, let's, let's back up a little bit. So, college administrators testified during the trial that they saw the students as their 
customers. Essentially, they saw the college treats and believes that the students are their customers. And based on this position and stance, the jury heard testimony that the college wanted special treatment from its students. Uh, one instance was an Overland community member testified that during a meeting between uh, this community member, Dave, and two people from the college, and I'm gonna quote from his testimony here. So this is, a, this is straight from, from the trial transcript that these two administrators told David Gibson and myself that really before the authorities were to be called, they were to, I guess, David was to call them first. They wanted to be called first. My, my history of what happened when someone was caught shoplifting was that the authorities were called, and I thought it was wrong because they, in the past, they treated nobody different than when they were caught shoplifting. So there was testimony presented that the college wanted to be contacted first when students were caught shoplifting at Gibson's Bakery, and there was also testimony presented at trial that they wanted Gibson's Bakery to give a first-time pass to students who were caught shoplifting at the store. So, from my understanding from the evidence, though, this wasn't a first-time event where students have been caught shoplifting at Gibson's, and it, and it seemed like there had been a number of complaints from surrounding businesses or businesses in the in the town that, you know, that there was a... Uh, significant amount of shoplifting happening in the town. Did you all ever really figure out why this event got uh, so blown out of proportion? And, and I mean, I mean, not even, um, that's not even the right word, but why, what, what was it about this event where did they decide to latch onto and then start these protests? So yeah, just to, to talk about your first point, I think you're, you're absolutely correct that there was evidence presented at trial that that's, not only was there an issue of shoplifting, not just at Gibson's Bakery, but at other, at other, at other uh, community businesses, but that the college was aware of the shoplifting problem and had not taken any action to correct it at the time. The jury was presented with that evidence that in November of 2016, there were those issues going around. So Gibson's Bakery specifically had a really bad history of, uh, of how shoplifting at the store, They'd lost thousands of dollars leading up to this incident. And interestingly, they always, always treated everybody the same. Anytime somebody was caught shoplifting at the store, they would call the police. And then even a lot of times, Dave would recommend diversion or some other type of non-prosecutorial non punishment after the students were caught shoplifting. So it was very surprising that this blew up the way it did. And, you know, we presented evidence to the jury that, the college was actually treating Gibson's Bakery as a proxy. Um, there had been some issues going on in the years leading up to the protest, in the years leading up to November of 2016, that the college itself was being accused of racism and other racist acts by its students. And we presented evidence to the jury that this, this situation was an opportunity for the college to treat Gibson's Bakery as a proxy to kind of push off those claims onto somebody else. Right. And then to, uh, and then to make sure, I guess, sort of take attention off of themselves and for their own acts. Um, and, and from what I understood, there was even a, um, an offer, it sounded like the same night, but, or very early on for the college to pay for the lawyers for these students. Um, I mean, were these students, uh, well connected with the college? I mean, what, what, what was the reasoning behind that for the, the college to do that? 
You know, I'm not quite sure. And as far as being well connected, I mean, I'm sure to a certain extent they had, you know, whether it was through classes, but it wasn't, it wasn't like they knew the president so they could make a phone call. I mean, the jury was presented with evidence that after the, well, this wasn't presented at trial, but we have, we have video evidence that they were promising to pay the attorney's fees the night they were arrested. And then in fact, followed through with that promise. And the jury was presented with evidence that, um, well, some of the members of the college board of trustees paid for retainers for the attorneys. And the jury was also presented with documentary evidence that the college paid for a limousine service to take one of the students to, from Lorraine to Columbus, which is about a two and a half hour drive to meet with his attorney down there. I mean, that's unheard of. I, 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 you know, I don't want to get into my personal background, but when I was in high school, I had some issues with, uh, with the law and I never had anybody from, uh, from my school, you know, <laughs> offer to pay for a lawyer or to, uh, to limo me around. I mean, that's, uh, I, 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 that's sort of shocking to me that the university would do that. Yeah, I think it was shocking to us. And I think, uh, you know, I didn't have the same experiences, but it, you know, I went to Akron, which is a state school. And I think, if something like this, well, first of all, nothing like this probably would have happened at Akron. And the level of involvement from my perspective was very shocking. I, I, I agree with you 100%. Well, I'm, I'm dying to know, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but I'm dying to know about um, jury selection in this case. Cause I'm just not, Steve, am I getting, am I jumping too no, far? No, 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 you go. Um, I'm just dying to know how it, how it worked because I'm, I'm not super familiar with the area. So I don't know what your pool was like. I don't know how many people were already going to be familiar with um, Gibson's either as customers or maybe just because of what was going on with these protests. But can you talk a little bit, um, just give me, but also our listeners an understanding of what, what your pool was going to be like, what, what you were dealing with. Sure. So we had about, I think it was close to, a hundred prospective jurors and the judge did a phenomenal job at the very beginning of weeding out anybody that had already formed an opinion about this case coming up to the trial. And I think there was a lot of media coverage, not only right before trial, but especially right when the incident was happening. So there were a lot of people in the Oberlin community and a lot of people in just the, the, uh, the Lorraine County community that were aware of the case and had already formed an opinion. And I, I want to say we had, I think 17 jurors struck for cause based just on that alone. The judge had them raise their hand and say, have you heard any media coverage of this story? And if yes, have you formed an opinion? And he talked to them individually and ended up striking, I think, 17 jurors for cause just because of that. And I think what we ended up with was a great, our, our jury was a great cross-section. And, and when I'm saying the jury, the members who ended up sitting on the panel was a great cross-section of the entire Lorraine community. It was a bit of varying backgrounds, both socioeconomic, race, and gender, and it was, it was really a representative jury of the community. Wow, and so had, you know, how much did y'all touch on during selection as far as like, I'm just like, is it is it like everybody knows Gibson's, everybody's been to Gibson's, or, you know, did you all touch uh, on that at all during? Um, jury selection. Yes, uh, the judge and opposing counsel asked everybody uh, asked everybody that question, and I, I'm trying to remember here because this was so long ago and there was so much going on. I think a fair number were aware of Gibson's Bakery. 
but I would guess that a larger number were aware of Oberlin College and knew somebody at Oberlin College because of the size of the institution. Right. But yes, there were people that knew of Gibson's Bakery that had, and I think we actually, we had one prospective juror who used to work there um, that was, he ended up getting struck for cause, but I think it was both institutions, both, both Gibson's Bakery and Oberlin College, the jury had a large amount of familiarity with both of them. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah, and one thing I noticed uh, from uh, from Lee's opening is he pointed out or pulled up the website from Oberlin, and um, I guess on the on the website showing the town of Oberlin, uh, it's got Gibson's Bakery there uh, uh, prominently on the website, and so he, he made a great point of you know if Oberlin is so thinks that this is such a racist institution, why are they you know putting it on their website is one of the reasons why you would want to go to school here. Right. Yeah. So I think in, I think the picture is located in the, under the mission section in their website and it's a prominent photograph of Gibson's bakery with the sign in the background, but you're absolutely correct. I mean, we did an awesome job pointing that out to the jury and showing that, you know, Oberlin college and its advertising materials was advertising, you know, Gibson's bakery. Can you, can you talk about the other things that y'all did at, um, at trial? I, I read excerpts of some of the testimony, um, to just kind of to establish what Gibson's was really like versus how it was being portrayed in these defamatory statements and in these flyers and the protests. Absolutely. I, you know, and this is one of the areas of trial that Janan and I were more involved in than others, but we had a long line of individuals from the Oberlin community, many of them people of color who could not wait to get up and testify on behalf of Gibson's bakery and how they had awesome experiences, not only at the business, but with the family members. And the, I mean, it was all, I, mean, I want to say we had 10 witnesses testify to that coming forward and saying, we've known these people for, in some cases, decades and know that they are awesome people. They have a great business, that they are not racist. And in fact, that there wasn't even a hint of racism before, you know, the protest happened in November of 2016, but there were a long line of individuals that came forward to testify. That's what it sounded like. And how did you, um, how did y'all go about identifying those people? I mean, you know, finding, I mean, did they come to you? Did you find them? How'd you pick who you wanted to testify? Sure. So, I mean, I think it was a little bit, a little bit of both. I mean, some of the people were identified. Um, well, some of the people came to us. Um, some of the individuals knew, knew the Gibsons intimately had, had very good relationships with us or with, with the family mm -hmm. and was, more than willing to come forward and testify. And I think I, there were probably, uh, to be honest with you, I can't even remember how many people we talked to, but the ones that we selected were the ones that knew the family the best, had the longest history with them. And, you know, one gentleman I'm thinking of in particular um, had grew up, grew up with Dave Gibson, was friends with him from childhood and all the way up through once they got married and he moved back into the Oberlin community, their kids were friends. So, I mean, I think it was those people that had, strong connections to the family that had known them for a long period of time. Those are the ones that we selected. Yeah. And I thought one of the things that uh, came out during the, the uh, opening and, and closing is sort of uh, grandpa Gibson. Uh, and I think his name is Alan. Um, just was sort of an institution there on campus that he would, you know, even at uh, 90 years old would even deliver, make some of the deliveries himself, go on to, you know, college and, and talk with people. And then, you know, just to have this happen to him, 
uh, I'm sure is just, uh, uh, was just shocking for him. Um, and, uh, can you talk a little bit about how it affected them individually? Cause I, and that's one thing I didn't talk about is the way this verdict was broken down is you had claims on behalf of Gibson's, the business, but you also had specific claims on behalf of David Gibson and Alan Gibson as well. And there were also verdicts in their favor. And when I gave the total amount of 44.2 million, that was adding all of those verdicts up. Yeah. So I think, I think you hit on it. Um, Grandpa Gibson, he's 90 years old. He is definitely an institution in the community. I mean, he had a long, one of his favorite things to do is there's some tables that sit outside of Gibson's bakery, um, right outside of the storefront. And he would like to sit there and talk to people as they came by. And he had a great relationship with the community and with the people. And I think, you know, this kind of sums it up what, what he was feeling afterwards. There was testimony at trial that he told Dave, you know, at the time he would have been 88 years old, and Dave, Dave Gibson, his son, who's, you know, one of the owners of the store, he told Dave, I'm 90 or I'm, I'm going to be 90 years old and I'm going to die being called a racist, even though I've worked my entire life um, for the exact opposite cause. And I, I think that kind of sums it up. If he was, he's looking at the end of his life and he realizes that everything that he's worked for, the hard-earned reputation that he had earned had been smeared in a matter of moments. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials Podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. I assume did you, you had your clients there at trial the whole time, and, and, um, and how did they do on the stand? Because we all know how important it is, uh, you know, how, how your clients do on the stand. Yes, they were, they were both at trial every single day, except for maybe one afternoon, Dave wasn't able to make it. And I think, I think they did a really, really good job. I think, you know, Grandpa Gibson, he's getting up there in years, so he's had a hard time hearing. We had to actually buy him, um, or I think the family bought it. It was like some type, it wasn't a hearing aid, it was like almost like a sound amplifier that he had to set on the side, uh, on the side of the table in order for him to hear the testimony. But he did a great job. I mean, I think, you know, when get to that age, he has a tendency to want to tell stories, but he did a great job, you know, talking about the case, talking about what this meant to him, what the business meant to him and what happened to him after the fact. And I think Dave, Dave did as well. Dave did an awesome job. 
So, so talk about in this case, I mean, because one thing that struck me about this case is that while the, uh, you know, actions are egregious and, um, you know, the, the personal stories of building a business and, um, um, you know, ha- having your reputation harmed, um, you know, are, are make for good stories to the jury, but they um, can a lot of times be hard to boil down into what is that worth. And so I'm interested to hear what, how you build up the damages in this case and, and what you presented to the jury on, on, um, you know, on what should be the right amount to be awarded. Sure. So I think, you know, like in any case, the damages at the compensatory phase were broken down into two components. And the first component was a lost profits analysis of what the bakery had lost and what it was projected to lose as a result of, as a result of the protest and the distribution of the flyers and the defamatory literature. And, you know, we had, uh, we had a, a, we had a lost profits expert. His name was Frank Monaco. And he testified that the compensatory, economic compensatory damages were $4.8 million. And that was for Dave in the bakery. And, it, you know, there was a couple different components to that. Not only lost profits from the business, but also the lost profits from other businesses that Dave, Dave is involved in that this impacted. And then as far as the non-economic damages, uh, we presented numbers to the jury of what we thought was a good range for them to find and they they agreed with us when they issued their verdict and is there any sort of um you know i just don't know the law of ohio is there any sort of apportionment type argument by the by the college do, do they try to get some of this apportioned to the students even though you wouldn't be able to make any kind of a recovery against the students uh i mean there is there is the opportunity for apportionment but that argument was not made at trial Okay. It, it, was that because of pretrial motions or was there even an attempt to do that? Not even an attempt to do it that I'm aware of. Not that I can think of. I mean, I, we, we did have two defendants in the case. So the college is one defendant and the vice president and dean of students is another defendant. But to, and you, you talked a little bit about the, the jury verdict or the verdict forms and the interrogatories to prevent even more confusion in those interrogatories and verdict forms we had a stipulation in advance of the jury getting the case that Overland College was liable for any damages against Meredith Romando. So there was no apportionment and essentially it was just one joint, one joint monetary verdict against both defendants. Okay. Um, and, and then I, I did want to ask you, cause one of the other things that, uh, that the defense did in their uh, opening, which again, I, you know, I thought uh, was a pretty decent argument, but they used their, um, sort of book of rules and regulations for the college uh, and, you know, essentially tried to argue that they were following exactly what the rules and regulations, you know, mandated for uh, student protest. Um, talk about how, I mean, did, were you all able to turn that on or obviously you were, um, how did you all address that, that sort of argument from the defense that, uh, that they were, you know, essentially following their own, uh, rules and regulations, and that's why the um, you know assistant dean was or the vice uh, vice president was there at the um, protest and things like that. Sure. So um, you saw you saw during opening that uh, opposing counsel he, he referred to these documents, referred to the student regulations as quote the book, and he talked about them for a substantial period of time 
However, the very first witness that we took the day after opening, Lee asked him, have you ever heard of a document at Oberlin College called the book? And his answer was, are you referring to the Bible? So, I mean, this, this, <laughs> right. this document that they're talking about, the student, student regulations, there was a lot of, there was at least two witnesses that I can think of, and these were not, one was a high-level faculty administrator, and another was a faculty member. They had never read the book, weren't aware of it, and I mean, I think that was, that was the main takeaway. And, and also, I mean, there were other provisions in that document that, you know, required or perceived, and I say required kind of loosely because this was not a faculty book of, of rules and regulations. It was for the students. It was, this is what the students are supposed to do, not necessarily the faculty. But um, there are other, other requirements, like one of them that I'm thinking of off the top of my head was when a protest is going to happen, the college has the opportunity to review the materials and provide an advisory opinion on whether the, whether the protest is um, not only lawful, but whether it's warranted. And that provision, as far as we know, there was no evidence presented that the, anybody at the college followed that provision in advance of the protest. You know, that's sort of a good example of, you know, it's great to come up with good themes that, that sound good to a jury, but you better make sure that the evidence actually supports what you're going to say to the, to the jury or else it's going to um, get turned on you very quickly, which you all did a great job of. Uh, we, we appreciate your words. And yes, we couldn't agree more. Um, well, so I, I, a couple of things I was wondering about, as far as expert witnesses, you talked about the fact that you had a um, uh, lost future profits expert. Um, was there any type of expert witness when it came to liability, or was that mainly based on just the, um, the evidence from the witnesses and from the, uh, um, the emails and the documents you were able to put together? Yeah, you're, you're correct. The liability portion now was based off of the emails, testimony, and documents. There was no, um, no expert witness on liability from, from either side. Related to the documents that you had, um, I'm just dying to know what discovery was like. I mean, did you, <laughs> did you get some of this stuff in your first round? Did you really have to fight with a lot of motions to compel to really get what were clearly some pretty damning documents? How, how did that how did the discovery process work out? Yeah, so um, discovery was a fight at every single turn, and it was a slog. So I think the case was filed in November of 2017, and as you can imagine, because a lot of the documents were emailed, we're dealing with a lot of ESI issues, a lot of, I, I think defendants, if, if I remember correctly, I think defendants filed 17 pretrial discovery motions and I might be off on the total number, but we had to fight tooth and nail for every single document. And, you know, at the end of the day, the judge was in favor of producing a lot of stuff. So, I mean, it, it got, down to the, got down to the wire almost where we were fighting over a list of additional ESI custodians that they were unwilling to do any type of discovery on. And it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting thing too, because the additional people that we wanted discovery from they could have been identified earlier and they weren't. And so after they were identified, after the first round of responses to interrogatories, we said, well, we need ESI from all these people and they refused. And we fought about that for, I, I want to say four months. So, I mean, it was, it was a slog every step of the way. I think at the end of the day, there were hundreds of thousands of pages of documents produced during discovery. I want to say 
and Janan sitting right next to me, she, she looked at a lot of it and I did a lot of the discovery motion drafting. But I'm thinking we had probably about 600,000 pages of documents that we had to go through. It was a lot. Discovery was very complex, but at the same time, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of issues that we got to litigate and explore. Yeah. Wow. And just for our listeners, when we talk about ESI, that's electronically stored information. And um, it's a nightmare (laughs) Um, when you have to get into those issues and um, thinking about native files. And also, um, you know, you can get you can get as you're talking about, you can get buried in documents and it's it's kind of a strategy to uh, bury you in documents that um, that seem to have nothing to do with what you've asked for. And so just that you not only might what you really want not have been produced or that information might not have been produced the first or second time around, um, but you've also got to weed through an insane amount of documents to even try and figure that out. So um, it's a yeah. lot of work, but sounds like you all really uh, managed to find the gold in this case for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I'm sure you, you two are aware of all types of, yes, I mean, they call it the data dump for a reason, right? So you just get massive amounts of documentation and, you know, you're talking about forensically imaged laptops that have different file types and metadata. And I, I think, I mean, we probably, between both firms that worked on the case, I think we probably put, put eyes on roughly three quarters of the documents and did uh, word searches for the rest of them. But it was, it was a lot, a lot of information, a lot of documents. As I'm sure both of you are well aware from, from many, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you know all about it. Oh, it's the worst. It, it's, uh, it, 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 it is a lot of uh, tedious work, but uh, you know, every once in a while when you find that document that you just know is going to help your case, it, uh, it, you know, makes it all worth it. it. And it can be a lot of fun, but yeah, you're right. It, it uh, takes a lot of uh, long hours to get there. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. A lot of long hours, but it's all, it's like finding, finding gold at the end of the rainbow when you, when you pull out that one document and it's just, this is exactly what I was looking for after 10 hours of sifting through things. So. Yeah. I was yeah. thinking about that when I was, I, it, it, tell me if I got this wrong, but I thought that um, it was the president of the college who actually wrote the email saying you might want to look at cutting off the OB dollars for leverage. And I had, I was thinking to myself that when you find that email, you got to feel really good about uh, your case and your damages. Yeah, so I, it wasn't it wasn't the president. It was okay. one of one of the president's high level administrators. It was it's almost like, a, for lack of a better comparison, it's like almost one of the president's cabinet members at the at the school. And she sent two emails like that. And I, I probably should have corrected you, but it, the college didn't actually cut off the OB dollars. They were just trying to use it, or there was emails showing they were trying to use that as leverage. Okay. To, we presented evidence as leverage to force the Gibsons to drop the criminal charges against the three students. Okay, so they were basically threatening to cut off the OB dollars, but never actually did. Right, that that's correct. They 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 wanted to use it as leverage, and you know we even we presented an email to the jury also that the you know that same administrator wanted to draft a contract for the continuation of business to be contingent upon the dropping of criminal charges. As right. I'm sure you're aware, you know, our, our guy, you know, once criminal charges are filed, it's the prosecutor that has the control over whether those charges go forward. Our people really don't have any, any control over it. The Gibsons have no way to, to limit that. Right. Right. But it, it does sort of make it sound like this is the Goliath that if they want to make something happen, they can get it done. 
Right, and I think we presented evidence of that during the trial. I would agree. Yeah, and I, I think that was a weird, that was the weird sort of shift. I don't know if it's the plaintiff's lawyer and me or what, but in, and I think initially you could start reading about it and you could be like, oh, this, you know, this poor, <laughs> this poor shoplifting student in this big bad company from a very high level perspective. And then you read about it and the pressure that was being put on, on Gibson's, this insane amount of pressure and um, the stuff about, you know, trying to, somehow get them to drop the charges and, and, you know, look the other way for first offenders and things like that. It's really, it's really shocking. And it completely flips what you might expect the dichotomy is going in. If you don't, if you're not aware of the situation. Right. And Steve, and Steve, just going back, I wanted to clarify something real quick. And, you know, Janan's writing me a note here showing me that I messed something up. I get those notes all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to clarify that there were several, several components of the business relationship between Gibson's Bakery and the college. So one of them was the OB dollars, which was a way for the students to use, and I think you hit the nail right on the head, use almost like a debit card to make purchases at local businesses. But the much larger portion of their business was Oberlin College hired a company called Bon Appetit Management Company and they ran all of the, the cafeterias and the purchasing of goods for those cafeterias. And I think five days after the, I think it was November 15th, um, the college, you know, evidence was presented to the college, instructed Bon Appetit to stop making those purchases from Gibson's Bakery. And that was one of the large, that was a large component of our damages and, you know, a large component of the case as well. Yeah, and that is something I should have mentioned, uh, and uh, and uh, I I do remember reading that that uh, that that obviously that contract or that business relationship with the college is a huge got to be a huge part of the business for uh, the bakery, and then just to cut that off based on um, you know what really was was uh, just some uh, misguided uh, protest is um, very bad for the college. Yeah, it was definitely. I mean it substantial harm to Gibson's and the Gibson's Bakery, for sure. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you presented the punitive damages section of this case. And you, I mean, just Ohio sounds a lot like Georgia. We, we uh, bifurcate the trial. You do the um, uh, compensatory part first, and then you do the punitive. So uh, when it came to the punitive damages, what did you put on as evidence and, and um, you, what did you ask for? Uh, because the compensatory uh, verdict was 11 million and then the punitives was 33.2 million. Um, so tell us about how you got the jury to come to that conclusion. Sure. So, um, you know, we were in trial, I think the jury was seated on May 9th and the compensatory verdict came out on June 4th or 5th and uh, maybe it was June 8th. So as I'm sure you have a lot of experience with this, it's tough to explain to the jury that after they sat there for four weeks, we need you to come back. You thought you were done, but we need you to come back and rule on the damages. But in the name of the game was to be as efficient as possible. And one of the things we did is we did boards of evidence that was presented during the compensatory phase that was, you know, it was relevant for compensatory damages, but it was also relevant for punitive damages. And so we were able to cut down a little bit by saying, you've already looked at this evidence and this is the evidence showing actual malice, both for defamation purposes and also for um, the common law claim. And we also, you know, the judge made a pretrial ruling that we were not allowed to submit evidence of 
financial uh, financial wealth or ability during the compensatory phase. So that made up one of the new components of evidence that was presented during the punitive phase. And I think, you know, we we got that evidence through a cross examination of their uh, of their. She's essentially the college's CFO. I don't, that's not her title, but she's essentially the college's CFO. We were able to present evidence that the college had $1.4 billion in assets, an $800 million endowment, and you know the different components of those assets in that endowment, and also the property that they owned. And the, one of the, I think one of the pieces of evidence that was interesting also is that they're a nonprofit, so they don't pay any taxes either. So it's not just the, the value, but also the benefit add from, from being a nonprofit. Right. And uh, I'm always interested to hear how the defense approaches that portion of the, uh, of the trial, because it's, you know, it, I, not that I, I want to say I feel for the defense lawyers, but uh, it is one of the more difficult things to do that once you've just fought very hard on a compensatory verdict and then loss, and then you're arguing about punitives uh, that, you know, uh, you kind of, kind of, come to them of, uh, you know, we've heard you, we understand, we respect you, uh, respect what you've said, we disagree with you, but, you know, and, and you know, please don't hit us too hard. Um, <laughs> how did the, uh, how did the defense, uh, uh, approach the punitive damages argument? Yeah. So I think you, you hit it right on the head. So they tried to present evidence that they had learned their lesson that they had, you know, they were going to change, you know, they also tried to say that, you know, they, they didn't act with malice. They were only, they were only, I think the word that they used during open was negligent. Um, and they also, they, they tried to downplay their financial ability because that's one of the components of punitive damages in Ohio. They tried to downplay how much money they had and what kind of solvency they were looking at. But that, I mean, those were essentially their themes. And I think our way to combat those themes was, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier uh, in that uh, frequently asked questions document. We had trial boards where we showed this is what you've already seen, and you're going to see some of this during during the punitive phase. This is the evidence showing malice. And then, as far as the financial the financial testimony was concerned, you know, I think the the testimony of the CFO that they had an $800 million endowment and a $1.4 billion in assets um, eliminated, I think, the effectiveness to a certain extent that they didn't have money to pay a, pay a judgment. Right. Um, well, this is certainly a fantastic job. And, and as I, I did want to just ask you, so I'm, I'm looking at your verdict forms in this case. And, um, and from what I can see, it looks like there's six different verdict forms with a multitude of questions on each one broken out by plaintiff uh, and then broken out by whether it's a, a compensatory claim and punitive damages. And each of these verdict forms looks like they're about 10, maybe 13 pages long. Um, and they, and they ask a number of questions. Each one has to be signed by the, the, uh, the jurors. And then, and then they come up with an award. Talk about um, putting together these verdict forms, which I know is always, you know, usually this is something that, that falls on, uh, you know, the, the associates at trial. And so th this had to be uh, something that was complex and tedious. And, and um, tell us a little bit about the, the verdict forms you have in this case. Sure. So, you know, we had three plaintiffs and each plaintiff was asserting their own causes of action against both defendants. So because that, you know, because we had, so for example, Dave Gibson was asserting a libel claim against both the vice president of dean of students and Oberlin College. And the way Ohio works 
is we need to show or the jury needs to agree that yes, he he presented enough evidence to prove his claim against that defendant, and then you know the same exact thing again for the next defendant. And you know there were also some claims that were alleged by the individuals that weren't alleged by the business and vice versa. So for for instance, the intentional infliction of emotional distress that's that's a private claim by the individuals. A business can't suffer emotional distress damages. And then the intentional interference with business relationships, that was going from the Gibson's Bakery against the college and Meredith Romano wasn't by the individual. So they did get complex, but, and also I should say, because of the bifurcation of, of compensatory and punitive damages, we needed them for not only the liability phase, the compensatory phase, but we needed similar jury or jury interrogatories for the punitive phase so they could make each finding. As far as the signatures are concerned, um, to be honest with you, I didn't give much thought to it. And maybe that's something that we have to think of, <laughs> think about in the future. Um, I think that's just generally how we do it. So maybe that's something that we should look at. Maybe we can make those a little bit less complex, a little bit fewer signatures to put, not to put such a huge burden on the jury. Well, it's, it's just different than the ones you see here in Georgia, which, which is what I found interesting. Um, but, uh, well, again, uh, this has just been great work and, and uh, uh, great talking to you guys. I, I would like to hear how is, uh, how is uh, Gibson's brothers doing today and how is Grandpa Gibson doing? So I think if you, I think if you talk to Grandpa Gibson, you would, you would see him as probably one of the most positive people in the world. Um, but, you know, as we discussed earlier, this had a profound effect on him, and it continues to this day. I think they were very happy, and I, I, that's probably not even the word for it. I think they were ecstatic that the jury issued a judgment, in essence, saying those claims of racism that were made against you, those claims were false. They were not true. And I think that had a big impact on the family. I think that was one of the driving forces, one of the reasons why they were so persistent. As far as the business is concerned, you know, like any any big big event, I think they've had some type of uptick since the verdict came out. But the issue remains that you know the three main sources and the three consistent sources of their business are one business that's flowing from the college, whether it's you know direct purchases or through Bon Appetit. Two is business from the students and three is business from the community. Those are the three pillars of their business, and as it stands right now, the college business has not been reinstated, and the students are still staying away because of the conduct and what happened during the protest in November of 2016. So while I think you know, the verdict has given them light at the end of the tunnel, you know, this is, unfortunately, this is not over yet. Yeah. Well, we uh, let your clients know that we wish the best for them. Uh, I, I know this had to be a difficult, I mean, extremely difficult time for them and, uh, and a difficult case, uh, but, uh, but just fantastic work. Thank you so much. And we certainly will pass around the, and pass around the message. And we wanted to thank you also for giving us the opportunity to come on and talk to you. This has been a, a great experience. I am a, a big podcast listener. So that's like essentially all I listen to in my car. So I was excited to, to try out the new medium of talking on a podcast. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, it was fun. And we love talking to lawyers like you and hearing, uh, hearing about the great work they do. Um, let me remind our listeners who we've been talking to. We've been talking to uh, Brandon McHugh and uh, Janan and uh, Ayub. 
and I know I screwed that up. Um, but uh, they are uh, lawyers at Zangus Placus Manos in Canton, Ohio, and you can look them up on lawlion.com. Uh, uh, guys, this has been just a great interview, and uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Steve, and thank you, Yvonne, as well. It was, it was great talking with you. Uh, it, was, it was an awesome experience for me. Thank you, Steve. Thank great. You. Well, thanks. All right. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great trials podcast.com Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. We're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go, and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time. And hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>